Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God and those keys to the kingdom. And we're going to, we're going to look at Exodus. We've been looking at Exodus for uh, a number of weeks. We're up to Exodus 5, so if you want to get out your Bibles and follow along, you can, but uh, it's probably better to go to preparingyou.com and look up Exodus 5, because we have the text there, and we'll be looking at the King James text. I'm not a King James only, although I, I use King James for consistency's sake. Uh, there's almost no quoting from any other biblical text, uh, except sometimes just to make a comparison in the translations. But the key thing is, what did the author mean? Not what the King James translators meant, but what the author actually meant to share with us if he was truly inspired, which is the story that the Bible is an inspired work, and uh, that the authors of it were inspired by this thing that we call God through some sort of Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit has guided certain people that we call prophets, and eventually we're going to talk about because uh, prophets, what's a prophet? Because of the fact that uh, that's one of the topics that comes up in Exodus. Because uh, they actually say, you know, God says that he's going to make Moses a god. <laughs> that's what he actually said. He's going to make a Moses a god to the Pharaoh. And that he's also going to make Aaron a prophet. And the reality is God, you know, I mean, Jesus even said to his apostles, ye also are gods. So what what is what did Jesus mean when he's saying to his uh, apostles that ye also are gods? I mean, what what is he suggesting? What is he trying to tell us? Uh, tell them uh, about this term gods. And this is one of the problems when we look at the biblical text or any kind of scriptures uh, is what did words mean at the at the time? If you can go back to the Artha Vedas and uh, some of the early Hindu scriptures uh, that are supposedly written by somebody named Brahmana. And uh, he has all kinds of words in there that were originally written in Sanskrit. And I always remember I was listening to somebody who sings songs in Sanskrit. And one of the reasons they said that they like to sing songs in Sanskrit is you can make Sanskrit mean anything you want it to mean. <laughs> and I, I thought, well, geez, that's, that's not very a definitive language if you can make it mean anything you want it to mean. And of course, that, that's true with all languages to some degree. We've talked about, and we have an article up on the original White Pine Peace Treaty, which is actually the foundation of the Indian Confederation of Tribes. Originally, five tribes and eventually seven tribes and uh, other tribes that were kind of 
swallowed up in the manifest destiny of the White Pine Peace Treaty Confederation. And uh, the fact is, is it was not written down in words at all, but in pictures. It was beaded works. There was, like for every clause, there was another piece of beaded work that stood for some of its symbols. And eventually, though, they did... Indians did put it down in a language, uh, a written language, that uh, so that we can look at it and study it. But we're looking at somebody's interpretation of that White Pine Peace Treaty that was not originally written in words at all, but in pictures. And why are we even talking about that? I thought we were going to talk about the Bible. <laughs> well, the original Bible, written by Moses... The, the Pentateuch, uh, at least, was written in Hebrew. And Hebrew is almost a picture-writing language. Every letter stands for an idea. You put several ideas together, several letters together, and you create another idea, another word. And that word may have a physical meaning, like the reins of a horse, or it may have a more abstract meaning like the control uh, of an, a particular thing. You know, the reins of a horse give you control of the horse <laughs> sometimes. I've ridden horses enough that I know that the reins don't always give you control. <laughs> but they do, are supposed to give you control of that horse. And uh, I, I'm thinking, when I chuckle, I'm thinking about a lot of other people that I saw riding horses, not myself, of course, but the reality is is that the language, uh, all languages are symbols of ideas. All words are symbols of ideas. But in the Hebrew, we have letters that are symbols of ideas. We bring those letters together and we draw a picture with those ideas and create another idea, which is very much like Chinese and Japanese languages, which are a series of lines and pictures. They have like 400 letters in their alphabet. They're not really letters. They're, they're parts of pictures. They're, they're base words. And they build on those base words to create, you know, there's uh, some kind of a building, and then there's a house, and then there's a barn, and then there's a temple. Well, all of those different words will have the basic idea of a building in them, and then you add a few lines and it becomes something else. It, they do this all the time with the Hebrew language. And for, when I first started reading the scriptures, I didn't know any Hebrew. I, I was studying Latin at the time, and then I started studying Greek, and eventually I studied the Hebrew. And I'm no expert at Hebrew, but uh, I don't I don't see words like most people do. I I think in ideas, and it's a real struggle for me to picture words. I was actually this is why I have a hard time remembering names. Is I can remember the person and what they look like, but uh, and who they are, but I can't remember their name. And I always thought, well, if I picture the person holding a plaque with their name on it, you know, like a, like they were just arrested and this was their, uh, their mug shot, uh, that I might be able to remember names more because I would think of their picture 
and I could see the name on the plaque. Well, I know I haven't tried that yet, but I thought, well, that's kind of a way of remembering people's name. And I, I have done some of those memory uh, tricks of trying to remember certain things by having a series of objects that you remember, and then you attach those to the different things. So you can at least get the first couple of letters of their name. <laughs> but uh, I've just, I'm, I'm an old dog now, and I don't know if I'm going to learn a lot of new tricks. But dyslexia has allowed me to look at the scriptures and look at Hebrew and look at for patterns because of the fact that I see things in picture form more often than I see them in that letter form. And uh, so I end up seeing patterns in what they are doing. And I, I'm shocked at the patterns that I see in in the Pentateuch, at least so far in Exodus. I see, I see it in a lot of different things, but it was another thing that I noticed, and I'm sure I could go back and do the math and figure it out, that there's several times where Moses writes in there that referring to God, saying that I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And uh, what in, in one chapter, I, I think it's actually in a chapter coming up, chapter 6, he writes that, then he talks about the past, and then he writes that phrase again, and then he talks about the future, and he writes that phrase again. And I haven't actually done the counting, but I've come across the idea that, because I was noticing the pattern, but I wasn't counting every single Hebrew word. Uh, and, of course, if you try to do this in the English words, you're not going to get the same number, because... One Hebrew word might be translated into three or four or five different English words, creating a phrase, because English has a lot of words that they don't even have in the Hebrew. But if you counted up the Hebrew words, supposedly there's exactly 50 Hebrew words between those uh, three appearances of the phrase. And it's a way in which that you capsulate it's almost like a form of poetry that you're encapsulating the language in this almost numerical pattern. And there could be a number of reasons you do this. Uh, Moses seemed to have uh, an astounding, shocking intellect. He was able to learn all kinds of things. He was an ex- exceptional uh, child and very bright and intelligent. and And so he... He would see patterns in things and he would explore those patterns, you know, like seeing the burning bush on the desert. He's, I'm not going to turn aside. I'm going to go out and see this. Uh, or I'm going to turn aside from what I'm doing and go out and see this light that looks like a burning bush out there on the desert. And But actually, if you look at the Hebrew language, even that phrase, turn aside... It shows up in other places as well, and kind because of, it kind of seemed awkward to me when I saw that, and we were reading that this idea of this burning bush, and he was, and and because God saw that he turned aside from either what he was doing or turned aside to go and see the bush, it's just not clear in the language what he, that it actually refers to. But I, I saw it was kind of awkward, and I made note of it. And then I'm going along reading some of the other, and looking, and I'm finding the same Hebrew phrase 
in other places. And when you see it in multiple places, in multiple times, by the same author, in the same book being used, you say, well, I kind of get an idea of what he's saying here with this and what what he actually means. You get a feel for it because you begin to know the author. It's kind of like when I was going to school and uh, in the seminary and St. Joseph College and and the different schools that I attended. I, I can't even remember how many schools I attended. I have to go uh, start counting them up. But I would find myself studying for a test based on who the teacher was. And, and I'm sure a lot of you have done this. You just maybe not have caught yourself doing it. You you think, knowing that teacher, he's going to ask this. Knowing that teacher, he wants us to know this. And I don't know a lot of people just kind of skate along through school, but some of us, that, that we would actually not really study for the subject matter, we would study for the teacher or the professor who was teaching us. What What is he going to ask? Because the goal was to pass the test. The goal is not to get knowledge. <laughs> It, to some degree, in our in our own minds, the 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 goal may be the diploma or to pass the test or just to be accepted or to be looked up to, and that was a big problem that I had. I was uh, not a very good student for the first three years, four years, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, I I received praise in school. For being, they referred to me as Mr. Scientist because I was reading ahead in the science book and I I knew the answers to all the questions that the teacher was asking because I wasn't paying any attention to her. I had learned to read by, <laughs> I was just reading ahead because I developed an interest in it. So every time she asked a question, I had the answer because I just read it. I'm a page ahead of you, teacher. And so all of a sudden they started calling me Mr. Scientist because I seemed to know all the answers to the science questions. And so then I put all my efforts into studying science because the feeling of being praised was something I wasn't used to. It kind of appealed to my ego, uh, which was also developing at that tender age. I was about nine years old in the fourth grade. And that actually caused a problem that I was now trying to reproduce that good feeling of being looked up to, of being accepted, of being praised. And uh, then inevitably comes guilt and then become uh, other things start kicking in and and uh and then if you don't get it then you know it becomes an addiction and you want to repeat that. And of course that was one of my first experiences with addiction. <laughs> is to receive that praise. All these things are actually covered in Exodus. Because what had happened, the Israelites were 400 years, give or take, there's different opinions, but around hundreds of years anyway, generations, in bondage, in Egypt. And they were addicted to a lot of the ways of thinking and the patterns of thinking and the benefits of being in Egypt and all those things. And they were going to have to overcome these things, a lot of them before they even left Egypt, many more of them after they left Egypt and went out into the wilderness. 
Because they were very used to being a slave. Not a slave in the sense of what we think of slavery, you know, back in the 1600s, 1700s in America. But a different kind of slave. They were a member of a corvy system of statutory labor where a portion of their labor belonged to the state. They had to pay in one-fifth of their labor to the state. This was the bondage of Egypt. Now, it had gotten worse for Israelites. We've seen that when in the studies. You can go back and look at Exodus 1, 2, 3, and 4, and we have, we're putting up the audios, and you can see what we've talked about. And so this will be up for as long as there's an Internet. We don't know how long that's going to last. Somebody was just talking today on uh, uh, early this morning. I was up around 4 and I, I was listening to uh, Epoch Times talking about the 106 attacks on the power grid in America. And uh, they were, some people are thinking they're coordinated attacks. They're not very effective. But millions of people lost power. We actually, since last week, since we did the show last week, we lost power at least, I would say, ten to a dozen times. <laughs> so we we lost power just yesterday. And so it's a possibility. And one of the things they pointed out, if you lose power in the United States, Within 90 days, people will be starving to death. Studies that have come out show that uh, 80 to 90 percent of the American population will be dead by the end of the first year if we lost power. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but these are actual data and statistics that are coming out because we are so dependent on power. Yet there's a lot of people who think we shouldn't have a power grid. And a lot of people don't think that we should have millions of people in America, that we should have billions of people in the world, that we should get rid of them. So there's a lot of different ideas out there. But of course, we know from our studies so far on Genesis, I'm expanding those studies too. We'll go back to Genesis after we get through Exodus because I think it's really important that we understand the process of letting the captive free because the whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt. You can go to any country in the world and everyone owes at usually at least one-fifth of their labor to the government. That's the bondage of Egypt. So the whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt. And the problem with that, and there's lots of problems with that, and God says even after he's taken, taken the people out of the bondage of Egypt and put them in this other condition, this other state, that is more uniform with the state of nature, the state of creation, because God created nature, God created man, and there is a natural state that man should be in, which isn't, you know, a primitive, savage, uh, you know, monkey-like, ape-like, uh, vying for survival of the fittest. That's, that's not when we became man. <laughs> man was breathed into by God, received the Holy Spirit of God, was made in the image of God, and God was this creator that did not only create, but created life for others, and actually gave choice to others. We know God gave man choice, at least between 
eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. He had that choice laid out before him. Both trees were there. Now he said, don't eat of, don't depend upon the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a source. You, you can use all the trees as good to eat, but don't use that as a source of what you know as far as good and evil. If, if you're going to know good and evil, you have to eat of the tree of life and the, and that will show you what is good and evil. But that's leaving judgment to God. That's, that's the whole essence of that story that Moses wrote down so that we would understand creation. So that we would understand our position in creation. Well, hundreds of years in the bondage of Egypt, we lost sight of that. And of course, when we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we lost sight of things. We didn't, where we really lost sight is we didn't want to see. <laughs> we didn't really have the ability or the authority or the right to decide what was good and evil. We could perceive it through the tree of life, but we weren't to decide it. And as soon as you think you can decide it, then all of a sudden comes shame, and then becomes it, you're, you're hiding uh, you don't, you know, when the light of the Lord comes, you want to hide from it. When, when a beacon is set there in the center of the garden, you flee that beacon, you flee the light, and you want to get away from that because you don't want to admit what you did was wrong. And evil comes into the world. And so what is evil? Actually, I heard uh, the, I forget the name of the comedian. He's a red-headed comedian, long-haired red-headed comedian. Uh, gets into a lot of trouble with his uh, comment, uh, Spears. Uh, J.P. Spears, is that it? Something like that. But anyway, he was talking about evil. He changed his opinion of evil. And uh, he, that evil really is something. You know, it's... But really what evil is... Now, his opinion is evil is anyone trying to control somebody else. That's what he thinks evil is. Because the devil's all about power and all that stuff. Well, the desire to control somebody else is evidence of evil. But what evil is, and I'm sure I would love to have the discussion with him. Uh, you can send this recording to him and see what he thinks. Because he's mentioned in the recording. <laughs> so, and uh, evil is simply the absence of good. Uh, and if good is light... It's equated with light, and evil is equated with darkness, then darkness is just the absence of light. And so that's really an important concept to understand, and, and we will lace that into our study of Exodus. Uh, but we're going to go to break. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, we had a little disconnect there for a second, but uh, we are going to look a little bit at uh, 5 because I've added a great deal more to Exodus 5. And uh, it's always good to do a little bit of review in that. 
you know, I, I originally take notes and we put them there. That's why I say that it's good to look at the page itself at Preparing You is because we have footnotes over there on the side and a great deal of information that we can't get to all in one program. But uh, because I go over it again uh, when we're looking at the audios and going into the other chapters and we're seeing, we're trying to tie the different chapters together. So, you know, I've added a great deal more comment in these different chapters as I continue to go farther into the book so that we realizing that the book is a totality of the message of Moses. And that's why I mentioned the the peculiarities that he does sometimes in writing where he creates numerical patterns with the words themselves. And uh, he puts, you you find certain phrases used here and then they're used in the next chapter and then the next chapter. Or, you know, like there are certain words that you only find in Exodus. There are similar words or certain spellings of certain words, like the rod of Moses, that it turns into a serpent. Well, the word serpent there is not the original word that we see in Genesis. It's not a word we see later on in Exodus where there are snakes that are biting people, and it's not the word serpent that we see much later in the Bible. It's a completely different word for when his staff turns into a serpent. The word for the rod, he uses a different spelling for the word in reference to the rod that we see mentioned in Exodus. That is only used in Exodus, even though we see the word rod used by Moses in lots of other places, the word he uses in Exodus for Moses' rod is different. When he talks about Moses speaking to Pharaoh, he uses one particular spelling of the word speaking when Moses is speaking, another spelling when Aaron is speaking. <laughs> for the same word of speaking. You know, if Aaron is speaking to Moses, he's going to spell speaking differently. If Moses is speaking to... <laughs> And if God is speaking, he spells it different again. He adds a different word, a different letter to the word. So what does all that mean? And I don't think we have to go into all the different meanings. It gets too confusing to go into all these different things. I have put a lot of these things in the footnotes and the side panels of each of these deals so that you can look at them yourselves. The word officer that we see in verse 6 in, in Exodus 5, that, you know, we have... Two different, pretty much completely different words that are translated into taskmasters. And so what's an officer? Well, we've done a whole series on what it means to be an officer. And then there seemed to be officers that were Israelites. And there were officers that were Egyptians. And so what? what is their role and how do they play into the the actual story of Moses. And what we're trying to do is show you that it's a very rich story full of a lot of information. And I'm also, at the same time, I'm going through the different episodes that are put together by Jordan Peterson and about half a dozen different scholars that are also examining Exodus. And uh, Exodus 5 is covered in the episode 3 of Jordan Peterson's uh, and Jordan is supposedly putting together a lecture that he's going to hopefully give next year on Exodus uh, based on what he learns in the process of this forum that he's doing. Well, 
you know, when I'm looking at their form, I'm looking at what they're missing because, I mean, they have they have a, a Jew there, Dennis Prager, and they have other scholars from other religions, and they all have their different opinions. And it's interesting to look at what is what are they not seeing? <laughs> what what is he not seeing? And and I'm actually learning from listening to them, although they get pretty darn heady. And it's really important to understand that the the story of Exodus is a story of people. It's a story of people as a group and people as individuals. It's a story of Moses. Why did Moses kill the Egyptian? Why did he have to look this way and that way before he killed the Egyptian? And what was he really afraid of? And when he... He knew that this was found out. He leaves. This is his words that he's writing down. But of course he wrote them down in Hebrew. And sometimes things get lost in translation. So what was really. What was Moses really afraid of. When he fled Egypt. And they actually talked about it. Although they didn't. What he was really afraid of they talked about. But they didn't mention when they went on to their episode four, they didn't mention this in relationship. Well, they did a little bit in relationship to Moses. They, they talk about leaders, that you're looking for leaders who don't want to lead. What they really mean is they're looking for leaders who don't want to rule over the people. They're looking for leaders who can see the patterns, can see what's going on, what what is a good tactic and what is a bad tactic but you don't want a leader who wants to rule over the individual we see this with Gideon I and my family will not rule over you yet he was this general Saul they gave him the power to rule over the people and right away he's doing a foolish thing he's forcing the contributions of the people he's forcing the sacrifices of the people that's going to destroy the people. We explained why in lots of our different articles. And we use the explanations that have been around for thousands of years. Why, when you give power to government to force the contributions of the people to take care of the needy of society, you will degenerate society. That's a well-known fact throughout history, repeated over and over again. Now, there are a lot of people in denial of that fact and don't want to see that fact, which takes us back to why I started out talking about Spears, Jay Spears, Jay, whatever. There's a ranch out here called Jay Spears. (laughs) So, anyway, but uh, where he talks about evil, being somebody who wants to control people. That's a leader who wants to rule over people, you know, and force them to do this and force them to do that and don't let them do this. And he says that's evil. No, that's the symptoms of evil. That that's what's going to come about when you live in darkness. Evil is the absence of the light. And, you know, I also heard just today Adam Carolla, uh, a comedian, was talking about the the people who were wrong about COVID. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, there was Ferguson who was wrong about COVID. 
and saying that millions and millions of people would die within the first few weeks. They thought 300 were going to die in our county within the first month. They were they were scrambling to find, you know, the doctors wanted people to find body bags to put all the bodies in. Well, that never happened. They were wrong. And, you know, then they said the shots, you get the shot, it stops. You're not going to get sick. You're not going to spread COVID. That was wrong. They, they admit that was wrong. Now, if I said that, well, I did say it, but if I said that on major TV or major YouTube, I would have been canceled, you know, a year ago. But now they know, well, that's not true. You can still carry it. As a matter of fact, you actually carry more virus. <laughs> and because you don't show as much symptoms, you'll be spreading it more. <laughs> but uh, so they know that was wrong. So what Adam Carolla is saying is that we need to call these people out. We need to expose that they were wrong. Well, yeah. But what really needs to happen is they need to see that they were wrong. They need to see and admit they were wrong. They need to confess to somebody. At least to themselves to start with and then hopefully to other people. Because they're addicted to being wrong. They were sure they were right, but they were wrong. And this is the same as, you know, like the alcoholic who thinks, if I, if I drink this, I'll be happier, but he ends up being sadder. But he goes back and drinks it, drinks it again. But if he goes to AA, they will say, you know, you have to stand up and say, hi, I'm Steve and I'm an alcoholic. You have to admit your addiction. So, when we're going over Exodus, and, and looking at these things, we have to see what we thought about Exodus before was really wrong. What we think about liberty may be wrong. You know, America is the freest country in the world. Well, every all U.S. citizens in America are in the bondage of Egypt. You may be free in some ways, but I, I can show you all kinds of evidence that there's other countries... That you can be a lot freer in. You know, I mean, if you're in California, you have less freedom than you do in Texas. <laughs> Probably less freedom than you do in Florida. But you're still in the bondage of Egypt. So it's it's about degree. But you can go to some countries and you may be in the bondage of Egypt, but nobody really cares. They won't bother you. <laughs> because, you know, the, you know, like if you're in uh, Santa... Santiago or Santa Domingo and uh, you live in the country not in the cities then you're a lot freer if you live down in the cities you're less free if you're up in the mountains you're a lot freer just because the long arm of the taskmasters don't reach up there but the reality is God wants you to be free souls under God everywhere no matter where you're at Wherever your foot goes. And that's another thing. You know, people think, well, because they're going to talk about this in Exodus. Promising the land of Canaan. Very interesting. What you don't see when you read it in English is the word order. Canaan is the first thing mentioned in that. The Hittites and the rest of them, they're way off down at the end. They're, it's not Canaan, Hittites, that, 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 that. It's Canaan. I'm going to give to you the lands of the Canaanites, which includes the Hittites. 
because the Canaanites were the traffickers. It was the people who owned other people. It was the, you know, that's what we call traffickers today is, you know, uh, human traffickers. Well, Canaanites were human traffickers. There was also a place called Canaan, but if you see the word order, you, he's referring to a type of person, a trafficker, somebody who owns other people, forces them to work for them, labor for them without pay, to pay off a debt, whatever it is. Well, everybody who's in the bondage of Egypt is being trafficked. They're all in the bondage of Egypt. They all have to work a portion of every year for somebody else to pay off a debt they didn't create themselves because they're back into a bondage and it's passed from generation to generation. And you usually go into this bondage because you desire benefits in a covetous way. Peter talks about this, explains it to us. David talked about it. Paul talks about it, that through covetous practices we would be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. We become merchandise. Merchandise, that's another word. Canaanites were merchants, traffickers. It's translated merchants or traffickers. Traffickers of what? Men. Well, we even look in the book of Revelation. At the end it says, the, the, these traveling merchants of the earth will have a full stock of all the objects. You know, you can imagine a big long list of objects. And men. And slaves, and even the souls of men. Because the bondage of Egypt will be everywhere in the world. Well, it's already everywhere in the world. <laughs> so, the, if you want to overcome evil, you have to receive the light, the truth. You have to be willing to see that light and truth. And I added another section and uh, expanded another page on the Exodus 5 page, and you can see it over in the side panel. And uh, it starts talking about phylacteries. You know, I added a, a section up there right at the top where it talks about in Egypt, under the Pharaoh, 20% of your labor belonged to the government. Talk about verse 6, where it talks about officers and taskmasters. Uh, verse 12, where the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt. Why? In order to find the straw. They had to go everywhere. So they got to know the Egyptians. Why, why is that important? Because these Israelites were to be priests to all nations. And so they had to get to know the people all over Egypt. And so that's what they were doing. And God was arranging all these events that we're seeing taking place with Moses and Aaron and the Pharaoh rejecting and the hardness of the heart. Another thing that I, that, that these scholars can't quite put their finger on, which we will cover. How is God hardening the heart of the Pharaoh? Is he, is he actually manipulating Pharaoh secretly, you know, the hand of God? turning him into a puppet? Or is things that God tells Moses to do causing a reaction in the Pharaoh because of 
Pharaoh's own choice of seeing the light or living in darkness. You see, if you make certain choices, there's going to be consequences. It's built in to creation. Pharaoh made certain choices when he was growing up, and we've explained a little bit about who that Pharaoh was and what right he had to the throne. You can go back in the earlier shows. And he was very defensive of his position. And the mere idea that Moses is going to tell him to do something, he doesn't want to do it. I always remembered a cousin I had. He, I was supposed to watch him. And uh, he was... He wanted to go downtown, this small town, real tiny town. And he wasn't supposed to go. And so he was giving me a hard time because he was a pretty precocious young little cousin. And finally I, I realized that I was just going to be wrestling <laughs> and holding him from going. And so then all of a sudden I said, okay, go, go downtown. You just go ahead, get out, go downtown. All of a sudden he, he wouldn't go. Because really... He just wanted to do the opposite of whatever I told him. <laughs> and so I told him to do what I didn't want him to do. And he refused to do it because <laughs> he didn't want to be told what to do. That works sometimes with redheads too, but don't let them find out what you're up to. But that's basically what what was happening with the pharaoh. But we'll talk more when we get to that section. But the down near the bottom of the side panel, I talked about phylacteries. And I have links there uh, to articles on phylacteries, article on teflon, uh, which is actually a, another way of saying a phylactery, which are all instruments in a ritual of meditation. And really what it is is an article on meditation. Because meditation is an exercise every individual can do to do what God is, to do the opposite of what got us into trouble. It's, it's waiting for the light of the Lord to enter into us so that we can see again. And so that we can receive the light. It's not a guarantee because you still have that choice. But it's an exercise in learning to see the light. Uh, we're going to get into Exodus 6 now because we've done our review of Exodus 5. And that starts out God's promise of deliverance. I'll lace in some of these ideas about evil as we go. But all this is tied together. Verse 1 starts, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go. And with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. So it's important to understand that the Israelites were driven out and they were driven out by the Pharaoh because God was going to make something happen. Now God's makes lots of things happen based on his creation and we call it the wrath of God or the blessings of God. These are what comes about if we do certain things in a certain way, with a certain intent, in within creation, within the creation that we live in, there there is a cause and effect. And we're going to see that cause and effect over and over again. We're going to bring about all kinds of things. 
that we're going to see in this whole Exodus story. And the idea is to give you a better understanding of the story so that you get a better understanding of yourself because we're all in this process of exiting bondage, exiting the bondage of darkness, trying to go into the light. And going into the light and understanding that God wants to impart to all of us is not the same thing as studying to get more knowledge. Studying to get more knowledge could be just eating of the tree of knowledge, which is what got us into trouble. That's why it says in the Bible, study to show thyself approved, but the actual word there, translated study, is not translated study anywhere else in the Bible, and it actually means to be diligent. So what God is going to do and he and and he's going to use his the natural course of events and the nature that people are developing within themselves based on either their love of darkness or their love of light that's going to set them up so they will do certain things a certain way that is predictable if certain things happen so all the pieces of the puzzle this is not like the, the, the Christmas puzzle that people put together, the 5,000 piece uh, puzzle. This is way more complex because all the pieces of the puzzle are all the people of Israel, all the people of Egypt, the Pharaoh, Moses, the Canaanites, all these different people are pieces of the puzzle and they're in motion. But they're in motion in the universe created by God. So automatic things are going to take place when you make a decision to do this, and then you act upon that decision. And what Moses is bringing to the people is an opportunity to make a different decision and act upon that decision. And what's going to happen is some people are going to be set free, and some people are going to go into bondage and destruction and death. You want to know how that process works because you want to go to the life, not to the death. But we'll have to look at that as we get farther into Exodus 6 when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Reading in this verse 1, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. And when we read it that way, it sounds like God's actually doing something to Pharaoh to make something happen to Pharaoh. But God isn't subject to time. God isn't subject to space. God is the author of creation and he is all, he is operating through creation but he's giving insight to Moses he's telling Moses what to do they talk about Moses going back to god uh and questioning god again and Moses is writing this down so what where did he go to go to god did did he go back out and look for the burning bush and ask the burning bush how is he communicating with God? Well, this is why I mentioned 
the idea of meditation because it laced in the in the text Moses is going to teach the people about this meditation we're going to see references to it in the Pentateuch and other books of the Bible and we even see it up into the New Testament but understanding is it's one of those best kept secrets right out in the open understanding what this meditation is which is a form of prayer and it follows a certain pattern but anyway we'll we, there's recordings already there on the page on meditation you can look that up but God is operating through these characters Moses Pharaoh the the circumstances all the people of Israel all the people of Egypt, they're all playing a part in this whole puzzle to bring something about. And what's going to come about is that the Pharaoh is going to drive the people out of Egypt. And Moses doesn't really see the whole plan. At least that's the way he writes it, as if he doesn't see it, because he's constantly going back to God and saying, you know, like, this isn't working out. What am I supposed to do here and everything? But God keeps telling them, and then he knows what to do next. In verse 2 he says, And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And that's that Yadavai, that Yahweh word that he just learned when he was out there with the burning bush. And he says, Who am, who am I going to say sent me? And it is the I am. The uh, It's kind of interesting. We translate that word into... Uh, I am that I am. That's a modern Christian uh, translation of the Yade Vahe letters that we see there in the text. Except for, according to Hebrew scholars, there is no am. There's no word am in Hebrew. If you were, if you were to say, I am Jacob, there is no Hebrew word to put in there to represent the am. Uh, it just, it doesn't exist. That I, Jacob, and it's assumed. But we put the word am in there. So, uh, another way that some people translate this Yadavai is the existing one. It is what is. It is what exists in all things. God exists in all things. It is outside of time, outside of creation. It created it, the creation that we see around us. Most of the other gods that we see, Greek gods, etc., in non-monotheistic uh, personification of whatever this god thing is that we see, this pattern of creation, they usually are in nature. They're in the environment. While they may have power over it, they are also subject to it. They even war with each other in these other mythologies. But even God's war with evil is a different kind of war. It uses a different kind of army. And we're going to actually see that in the translations when it mentions armies here in the text. Because they thought, like, what do they mean, armies? And so uh, we'll take a look at that word. But in verse 3, we go on this existing one. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But my name 
Yehovah, that's again that Y-H-W-H or Yadevahe, was I not known to them. So they didn't know the name Jehovah. They didn't know the name Yahweh. For some reason, they write it Jehovah here in the King James, but L-O-R-D, all caps, is the same word. And it would seem to be that it would be more honest to sit, just put that in. <laughs> Use it if you're seeing the same Hebrew word, Yadevahe, why don't we have the same consistent representation of that word every place it shows up in the text? But they didn't do that. But we can get around it because we, we can look at the text. But now in verse 4, we see this, And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. So there was a pilgrimage in the land of Canaan. And and he's saying specifically this land of Canaan. And there actually is the word Eris and the word Canaan. And there's actually some some words in this sentence that are not translated. They're accusative, some call them a punctuation, but it's Elif Tov, which appears at least twice, if not three times in this particular verse. But the word Canaan is way up at the beginning. That's the first word that we see translated. He's giving them the the land of the Canaanites, which is the the same as saying the land of the merchants of men. The land of the traffickers. You, you know, if you listen to Klaus Schwab, he says, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Well, according to God, if you follow his plan, you will own everything, but you won't be possessive. <laughs> you, will be, you will be charitable. And uh, we, we have a little bit of uh, reference to the word give there. Which in that, the word that we see there, that forgive in the text is actually written differently. The words that we see establish my covenant. Almost every single one of these words has a tov in it. Even those accusatory punctuation words that are not translated, they have a tov in them. And this word that we see as give actually has a double tov in it. And I've added to our page on double letters. Double letters are almost completely not essential anywhere in in Hebrew. So if you see a double letter, there's usually a meaning. And if you see a double letter in a word that normally doesn't have the double letter, there is an extra meaning in that. We're not going to go into all that detail. We can do that in a separate program because I've been accumulating all the words that suddenly have double letters in them and what those double letters might mean. But the way this particular word, not spelled this way, generally speaking, anywhere else, actually it does show up in Deuteronomy 7.5. This uh, double tov, it's tov tov chet tov nun. That's, that's the word that we're looking at in dealing with the contract, the covenant that, that we're dealing with. But the word uh, give is also part of that. Double tov. There, there's another word there, latet. 
which is Lamad Tov Tov. And rather than go off too much on this, the idea of double letters in almost every instance that I've come across them, there's a few exceptions, not really totally exceptions, you can still apply it as well, is the Tov is, is as we've talked about, the letter of faith. And there's always been this idea of a double Tov written a couple different ways. And you find this symbol throughout ancient uh, texts. But the double Tov is in spirit and in truth. That's the best way to sub, sum, sum it up. Is that you have faith in spirit and truth. And it's what Jesus says. It's not enough to be say Lord, Lord, but you have to become a doer of the word. And this is what we're seeing taking place in the preparation for their exodus. They not only have to say they want to be free, they have to act upon that desire to be free according to the ways of God. What we're going to see is Pharaoh acting upon that, what he believes in, According to the ways of Pharaoh, the ways of darkness, the ways of denial. He's gonna, he's gonna say, yeah, I'm gonna do this, but he's not gonna do it. He's gonna say this over and over again as we see the plagues. He's gonna be, say, okay, yeah, I relent, I'm gonna let you go. Uh, no, I'm not gonna let you go. <laughs> he's gonna do the opposite of what he says. But probably the most important thing is that we have this, this double tov in this idea of give, this word for give that is not spelled this way normally. And my covenant has a tov in it. Of course, uh, it says my covenant with them has the elef tov in it, elef tov mem. There's several places where we see the elef tov that are accusatory punctuations emphasizing these. Even the word established has an extra tov and a yod into it because this is all about faith. It's trusting in an unseen God. This right reason. Again, the law of nature created by God, the creator. Right reason. Uh, the will of God. These are all convertible phrases in ancient history and in scripture. And they're all representing the same things. The law of God that's built in to, built in to the system. So as we move through the text, we want to keep these things in mind. And in verse 5 we say, And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Now they were brought into bondage because they threw their brother into bondage. They owed 20% of their labor to the government. But now this had become even more burdensome they were evidently taxing them at not necessarily a higher rate, but imposing the tax when the children were still very young. So if you had more children, you had to pay more labor in. And instead of weakening the people, the, the difficulties of this was making the people stronger. Yeah, they were not diminishing. They were still growing in population. They were They were not just all down in the mud pits. You know, we know that Aaron knew the arts of the temple. We know there were stone cutters, metallurgists, all these different skills they had. And they were becoming more and more skilled. And they were doing this because family was becoming more and more important as the Egyptians were crafting a state that weakened the family. And we actually see this for the last 
uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years since FDR, families have been weakened by the social welfare system that was still playing on the Egyptians, but was was not giving the Israelites a free pass. In their desire to make things difficult for the Israelites, they were becoming stronger. Part of that preparation for liberty under God, which we are really in that microcosm in our own history now. So, in verse 6 we see, Wherefore say the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretch out arm, and with great judgment. That whole stretch out arm, that is that is a thing that we see over and over again. I mean, Moses will do this with the plague. He will stretch out his arm his, and the staff. And this will bring about certain things. We already see the, the Israelites have to go out and get straw. And this is stretching out the arm of God because the Israelites are to become the arm of God, the priests of all nations. Priests of all nations to show them the way of righteousness. Many people are... Jewish today, they think they're Israelites, they think they're uh, Israelis, they think they're of this religion, or people think they're Christians, but they're not really doing the things the way that God wants us to do them. And so we're going to see the patterns of that way in what God is having the Israelites do and what some of the Egyptians will do. So in verse 7, we see... And this stretching out of the arm will bring this judgment. It will bring the consequences. And the people are that arm. Just as Moses is an arm, Aaron is an arm, but so are the people themselves. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So this... it. This God, and the Lord, word Lord there is that Yadavahe, that's not really his name. Moses said, what, who shall I say sent you? Because everybody's used to naming this person or naming that person or naming this thing. But God really doesn't need a name. He's just the existing one. But you can call me this Yadavahe. Uh, he, he didn't find it necessary to to give them this nomenclature before, but now he has given it to them because Moses asked for it. But you can know how to spell Yadavai, you can say the word or not say the word, but it doesn't make you actually listening to God. You may be listening in your imagination to an imaginary God that you've created in your own mind, which is, of course, the essence of idolatry. But, God is in this creation, and if you do things according to the precepts of God, you will be set free. You will stay free. If you don't do them according to the precepts of God, you will not become free. But no way am I saying that what you do sets you free. What sets you free is what is what God has already created. I'm just showing you the pattern. It's like... This is the pathway. You go down this path. You turn right there. The road didn't get you to where you're going. You followed the path. 
and you've got to where you're going. It's your walking the road that gets you to where you're going, not the road. You don't worship the road. <laughs> you don't, you don't raise, you know, a monument to, uh, you know, immortalize the road. You got there because you followed the way of God, the way of Yahweh, the way of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, and I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it you for a heritage. I am the Lord. Now, we think of that land as a geographical location. I want to remind you, that land, according to the New Testament, is wherever Abraham puts his foot. It's wherever men of faith walk in the way of God. We Again, that may have brought them to the land of Israel, but the land of Israel is just the road. What got them to own the land was faith. That's why I just mentioned that in relationship to the verse 7. Is that it's not the road. It's it's you following the road, the way. If you follow the way of Abraham and live by faith with altars of charity instead of altars of force, then you will go the way of liberty. If you simply think that, you know, I'll put up a sign and we'll call this road the road to Israel and we just take that road and we will end up in Israel. No, you won't. You'll only end up in Israel and overcome the traffickers of the world, the merchants of men, if you walk in faith. And this is what the... Israelites and many of the Egyptians are going to learn how to walk in faith. This is the whole message of Exodus. Because you're exiting one way and entering another way. In order to get them to even start the way, though, we're going to need Pharaoh to drive them out. And so that's that's part of this message. And so in verse 8, And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses. For anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. You know, I'll, I'll look again at that word cruel bondage, but it just jumps out at me. What do they mean cruel bondage? That's why they're not listening to Moses? That would seem to make them, well, he's, he's promising to deliver us from this. But they're not going to listen because of anguish of the spirit and cruel bondage. That is worth looking into greatly. But we don't have enough time to do it. Or we won't get to the end of this chapter. But uh, we'll probably come back and review that as we get into Exodus 7 and 8. Because I'm sure that's going to come. Because they have to overcome that before they will hearken unto Moses. And see, that's what a lot of people aren't now moving towards liberty under God. They've heard me talking about it for years. The the number of people that have been listening for six years, seven years, eight years, ten years, but still not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands uh, is is shocking. (laughs) But, But it's because of anguish of the spirit and the cruel bondage that they're addicted to. And they need to let go of that and start walking in the way. And it doesn't take much. 
because it's ultimately God that's going to make you a prophet and more. But anyway, verse 10. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Go in, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now, he's saying, go in and speak to him to let the children go. This is one of the things those scholars were not getting. That somehow or other, they're asking to go out into the wilderness and serve God for three days. Go three days out into the wilderness. And they say, well, that's deceptive. That's not what he's planning. He's planning on taking, you know, they're making it out like he's going to take them out there for three days and then they're just going to take off across the desert. No, this is part of the plan. Because they're not only training Pharaoh, giving Pharaoh an opportunity of choices. Because God doesn't take away the choice of Pharaoh by hardening his heart. God just knows that his heart will be hardened when Moses comes in and says, let my people go. Because he will look at that as a threat. Like my little cousin. Who wouldn't go downtown once I told him to. Which he wasn't supposed to do. I eventually explained that. The whole thing to him. How I manipulated him with reverse psychology. (laughs) And he just. His eyes just pondered it and pondered it. We ended up having a good laugh over it. To show how easy it was for me to manipulate him. I don't know if Pharaoh ever had a good laugh out of all this. But let's hope so. Verse 12, And Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me now. How then shall the Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? And I have footnotes over there on the side. Uncircumcised lips? Is he supposed to cut off some of the flesh on his lips? (laughs) Well, they actually have a word there, uncircumcised lips. And it's, you know, we're supposed to have circumcised hearts, but many of us have uncircumcised hearts. You know why we have uncircumcised hearts? We'll go back up to verse 9. Because of the anguish of the Spirit and the cruel bondage (laughs) that we've been in for decades, for over a hundred years, we've been in this cruel bondage. I mean, didn't really get going until around 1933, but We've been in this cruel bondage. See, before that, there was no 20% of your labor or 30% of your labor or 40% of your labor that belonged to the government. That was brought in by the Pharaoh of America, FDR, that he brought that in. But of course, the groundwork for bringing that in was brought under brought in under Woodrow Wilson. We have whole books free online. You can read how this all and hundreds of articles and everything so you can see how that's come about. But what we want to know and the only value of knowing how this has all come about while the whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt. Well, there's a lot of reasons we could blame it on false churches, false religion, false uh, synagogues who have been teaching the people almost the truth, which of course is a lie. For decades and decades, maybe even hundreds of years, depending on who we're looking at. But the reality is, is because of the anguish of spirit and the cruel bondage, we we have to go back and see the light of where we went wrong and and love the light in order to find our way on the path to liberty under God. 
you have to go back and see, just like what we talked about at the beginning, the, with Adam Carolla saying that they have to admit that they were wrong about COVID and wrong about the vaccination, wrong about, I think that's so important. Well, I'd love to have the conversation with him. What are the other things that we were wrong about for the last 100 years that we need to also admit that has degenerated our society and the whole world, bringing the whole world back into the bondage of Egypt? We have to see all these things. And the Lord spake to Moses and unto Aaron and gave them a charge unto the children of Israel. And we'll have to look at that. And unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, so we're down all the way in this verse 13. And the next section is going to be talking about the genealogy of Moses. And that's it's really almost a chapter into itself. But that verse 13 is full of all kinds of information that the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron. And, of course, this is written by Moses. And gave them a charge unto the children of Israel and unto the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Even the word Egypt means bondage from the point of view of the Bible. But if we go back to uh, this verse 13, it gave them a charge unto the children of Israel. The word charge there is Tzedek Vav Hey. That's the normal word and how you would spell that word charge, which is often, probably more often, well, it is more often translated command and uh, or commandment. Uh, but it is translated charge a number of times. But uh, one of the interesting things about this, the appearance in this particular verse is we see a different word there. It's not Zedek Vav Hey, but Vav Yad Zedek Vav Mim. So there's only two letters in this that are in the original word, and all the others are not. And uh, we'll see this word only one other place, and that's in Exodus 34:32, and it's translated command. In, in that. So this charge, and it, I'm not saying it's wrong to put in this verse uh, that it's a charge, but it's literally a command. This is God commanding Moses and unto Aaron, because he's speaking to Moses and unto Aaron by way of Moses, that he's going to command that the children of Israel leave. And eventually Pharaoh will do just that. He will command them to leave. And this is what he said back there in the beginning. Is that he will bring it about. So Pharaoh will literally be doing the will of God by forcing the people out of Egypt. Understanding that God works that way. So a lot of people today want to be free. 
but they're not willing to look at the light of what they've done that's wrong. That's not in the original gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not, you know, if they're a Jew by heritage, not in the message of Moses. Because Moses and Jesus were telling us both the same thing. They were both, they were in agreement. It's everybody else who goes and studies them are not in agreement. And so then you have the Jews over here and the Christians over here. And then amongst the Christians, you got 40,000 different denominations. Uh, and yet all the Christians, uh, almost all the Christians, I can't say all, all the people professing to be Christians today have gone back into the bondage of Egypt, which was prophesied that they would, but they've gone back into the bondage of Egypt because of their covetous practices, which led to a lot of the things that we see going on in the world today. Uh, a lot of the, the death and disease that we're seeing today, a lot of the... Uh, Economic woes uh, that we're seeing today, the the runaway inflation we're seeing today, it's not the fault of government. We made that government. We've made them do this. They're swept away by the greed and power that we gave them. But we gave them that because we were not being real Christians. Because real Christians practice pure religion, unspotted by the world. They don't depend on FDRs and LBJs and Obama to take care of the needy of their society. They do it through free will offerings. This is what the Israelites in Egypt and many of the Egyptians are going to have to learn. They're not going to get assistance from the government anymore to find their straw or anything else. They're not going to get that assistance from the government. They're going to have to do it on their own. They're going to have to do a little overtime. But in the process of having to do this, they'll get to know who in Egypt have a sympathetic ear for the Israelites. They'll get to know them because they're they're traveling all over. They're going to go, going to have to go out and and trade with other people to get their straw. And people are some people are going to give them good deals and some people are going to give them bad deals. And they're going to find out who is willing to help the Israelites and sympathize with the Israelites. See the injustices of the Pharaoh because. There are many Egyptians who have a sense of justice, who who see a little bit of the light of what is righteous. Because remember, we're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They're going to see the injustice of the Pharaoh, and they're going to attend to what Jesus calls the weightier matters, law, justice, mercy, and faith. Because they're going to have mercy on the Egyptians, uh, on the Israelites, and they're going to help them out. And in the same drama that will be behind the scenes, we know the Israelites are going to be helping them out. Because they're going to actually, many of the Egyptians are actually going to love the Israelites more than they love the Pharaoh. Some of them will actually leave with the Israelites. Many of them will give the Israelites all kinds of gifts. Where did that come from? God brought it about but he brought it about because he was he was playing all the chess members on this multi 
dimensional chess game and he was using Moses to stretch out his arm amongst the people and then the people began to stretch out their arms looking for more straw and this was going to create a society that was getting ready for liberty under God. When they left they weren't quite as ready as they probably needed to be but they were ready enough to leave. <laughs> Most people today are not ready enough to leave. So we we're not going to go through and read all these, you know, these are the heads of the father of their father's house, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak and Palu and Ezran and Carmi and all these different people. But it's important to understand uh, this is kind of the lineage of Aaron and Moses being brothers. It's their lineage. And it's only going back a little ways. And uh, it's Eleazar, Aaron's son, if we see in verse 25, uh, took him one of the daughters of uh, Puliel to wife, and she bare uh, Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers of the Levites according to their families. See, God instituted the families. So that's basically what those verses uh, 14 to 25 say. These are the Aaron and Moses. These are that Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are they which spake to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are that Moses and Aaron. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spake unto Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I am the Lord Speak thou unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say unto thee. And Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? And of course, the chapter ends with that question. Moses is still asking the Lord, how shall the Pharaoh hearken unto him? Well, he also needs the Israelites to hearken unto him. And of course, this is partly why they're going through all these families. because, And this partly will eventually probably play into why the Levites, when Moses calls the people out of the Walden camp of the Golden Calf, why the Levites, generally speaking, wasn't just Levites, they're the ones who came out first. It's why they became the firstborn because they were the firstborn of faith. It wasn't automatic because of their bloodline. It was because of they turned their faith, their belief into action. They actually took a step. And we're going to see why that was such a big step when they came out of that camp and followed Moses and then went back into the camp and then they're carrying their swords at their sides when they go back into the camp. And supposedly they slayed all kinds of people. Well, we may have to look at that word slay and see what word is actually there in the text. Because we've already seen how they they shift the meaning of words around by adding different letters. Like this latet that we saw in verse 4. Written as Lamad Tav Tav. 
It's not always written as Lamad Tov Tov. As a matter of fact, a lot of times it's not written as Lamad Tov Tov. And uh, as we see also uh, other words like Nathan, which is normally Nun Tov Nun, is written Vav Nun Tov Tov Yod. So what is that all about? It's about being in spirit and truth. And it is not enough. God is not going to set the Israelites as a whole nation free simply because they're a bloodline. Because we know some of those that set free did not follow Moses. They went off and they disappeared and we never heard from them again. And we know that some Egyptians went with them when they were kicked out. Is because some began to love the light and were able to walk in the spirit and in truth. They were able to turn their faith into action. They didn't just listen to Moses for seven years <laughs> and do nothing. They actually turned what they were hearing in their heart and in their mind into action. That is absolutely essential because when you turn that into action, your heart becomes circumcised by that action. And it's a part of the process of God. It's God who's doing it. But God gave you this world to have those actions in. God, you know, gave them charge unto the children of Israel to do something that was very important. And like I said, the, the normal word for that charge is tzedek vav hey. But the word we see there in the text is vav yad. That's the divine spark. Tzedek, which means righteousness. Vav, a connecting word. And mem, which has to do with flow. Faith began to flow in them because they took the first steps. And so we're seeing this process of taking these steps towards the kingdom. And they haven't even left Egypt yet. Because they're not ready. They're you know, just like his lips were uncircumcised, which actually means unskilled, and we actually see the word spelled a little bit different. Some of the words around that actually spelled a little bit different. Uncircumcised lips, it means he was, he was slow of tongue. He was not skilled in it. Well, they're not skilled in liberty. They're not skilled in freedom. They're still in this bondage because of the condition of their spirit and the cruelness of this bondage. But like I said, we will eventually look at that word cruel bondage and anguish of spirit and ask ourselves, do we have an anguish of spirit? Uh, one of the things that I also listened to this week and, and I, I jotted down you know, on my phone and, and little notes is this. Edward Snowden has a long talk with Stossel, John Stossel, about, you know, why he's where he's at and what he did and what he didn't do. There's a lot of false narrative, and it's kind of informative, the interview. But one of the things that he said during this interview, which is really what I caught my attention and was profound, he says... The only way to change this is through sacrifice. 
And what is he talking about? He, he's seeing a totalitarian state controlling people and and gathering information on the people. And that information is power. We've seen that as Noah Harari is saying, whoever controls the data controls the people. And, of course, we saw the attempts to do that with the COVID pandemic that they were trying to control the narrative. They were censoring people so that you you didn't get certain information. And a lot of people, they only knew what they were told. They only knew what they, because they were used to hearing. And it's like, you know, that you have an alcoholic and, and he's trapped in a bar. <laughs> and there's nothing to drink but alcohol. Well, that's not a good thing. And so they only wanted some people to hear lies and misinformation. And anything that contradicted their misinformation, which they have admitted now was misinformation. Anything that contradicted their misinformation was misinformation. In other words, they called the truth misinformation. (laughs) And they called misinformation the truth. That's calling good evil and evil good. It didn't just start with COVID. It started way back. And and as I'm going through and looking at at a lot of these things, because we're going to talk a lot about priests and Exodus, because we're going to see them set up this kingdom that operated entirely by free will offerings. That's that's the amazing thing about Israel. There were no taxes in Israel. There was actually like a half a dime tax once a year for a whole family. And, and that was it. And anybody could pay it for you. And so that was the total taxes. And it was just kind of, I'm in the pot. You know, I'm throwing in my half a dime. Uh, and, but everything else was free will offerings. You could, you could pay any Levite you wanted. You could pay him any amount you wanted. He, he couldn't put you in jail. He couldn't kick in your door. And they operated a whole nation that way. Thousands and thousands of people. Can, could that's actually how the early church operated? Didn't take any more benefits from from Caesar or from Ephesus, the temples at Ephesus, which were their systems of social welfare. That's it was run through those temples. They operated an entire nation of people all over the Roman Empire, but they operated by faith, hope, and charity. They no longer depended upon the legal charity of Caesar or the legal charity of any of the city-states or wherever they went, if they went up to England or they went what became England or they went up to some of the areas that were somewhat outside of the control of Rome, they operated by faith, hope, and charity. They did not force the contributions of the people. And that's why Christians became free. And that's also why they survived the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. When the lights went out in Rome, they were ready. Because they had their own network. And when the famines and the dearths that we see talked about in Acts were spreading across the Roman Empire, uh, they weren't every man for himself. They were a network of love and charity. Practicing pure religion. In other words, pure religion. We have an article on this. You can go look it up. Pure religion is religion. Religion is how you take care of the needy of your society. 
Pure-religion was doing it unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of governments of the world. Because there is another king, one Jesus, that had a covenant with Jesus to take care of the needy in a daily ministration of faith, hope, and charity. That's how the Christians were operating. It's not how the Christians operate today, or the people saying they are Christians. That's not how they operate. This was the problem we saw in Mark 7, 10, 13. The Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. Because it wasn't operating in love, in spirit and truth. It was operating in legal charity to force contributions. That's what had been set up by Herod and the Pharisees. And therefore was making the word of God to none effect. And they had to change the way in which they took care of one another to become a Christian. And if they got the baptism of Jesus, as we see in John, if they got the baptism of Jesus or the baptism of the apostles at at Pentecost, they were cast out of the social welfare system that had been set up, the Corbin system of sacrifice. So going back to Snowden, he says... The only way to change this is through sacrifice. That is a profoundly true statement. When when James Madison, uh, who said, Charity is no part of the legislative duty of government. Madison said that. So, we have, you know, this new revival. Uh, what do they call it? Awakening. And the Republican Party, supposedly. That is going to thwart what we see going on in the Democratic Party. And they have these big rallies and they talk about Jesus and they talk about, you know, this awakening and they get all emotional and they, they sing these songs and they praise Jesus and everything. But they still have the Corbin of the Pharisees. They're still taking care of the needy of their society through forced offerings. It's not a gift of the God of heaven. It's the gift of God Caesar. You know, this is why we have articles on Caesar was called the Son of God. Jesus was called the Son of God. Caesar had a system of social welfare. Jesus had a system of social welfare. Jesus' system of social welfare operated on faith, hope, and charity through a network of Christians who rightly divided the bread from house to house, and they were able to do that because they had organized themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded back in Mark 6 so that they could have a Corban, a sacrifice, that operated by faith, hope, and charity. Because the Pharisees' system of sacrifice, Corban, that's, what Corbin means is sacrifice, operated by force and fear and fealty. John the Baptist had set the groundwork, said, you know, until John the Baptist, everybody was trying to do it by force. They were doing it by force in Ephesus. They were doing it by force in the Parthenon. They were doing it because you registered, you signed up, you had to pay in. FDR did it by force. I mean, you had to sign up. If you didn't sign up, you didn't have to pay. Matter of fact, you couldn't pay in if you didn't sign up because you got to get a number in order to pay in. <laughs> you could send a donation, <laughs> but but you, if you're going to be a part of that system, you have to be numbered by the system, and then you have to pay in. 
And Jesus said, no. In our system, we don't do that. J- David. David said what should have been for their welfare had become a snare. How does that happen? Well, David numbered the people. And now, he was doing it to institute a draft. But he said, no, I shouldn't do that. I have to operate by... You cannot become a free society until you set your neighbor free. And if you're going to set your neighbor free, you have to get your straw from somewhere else other than the government of Pharaoh. And that's what they were beginning to learn. Because it was important that the Israelites, yeah, they had the... They still couldn't quite get it. Because the anguish of the spirit and the cruel bondage kept them from hearkening unto Moses. The anger and judgment and the the power drunk Pharaoh couldn't see it for another reason. But the reality is they're the same reason. Because this it, the reason again that the Israelites went into bondage is because they threw their brother into bondage. You see it's 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 really all this talk about double tops and all the other double letters that you you can you can read about on the page that we're putting together on this subject. It really comes down to: Do you believe in Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth? In spirit, you say yes. Well, it's only in truth if you're rightly dividing the bread from house to house through faith, hope, and charity in a network of love. It's not, you're not really a Christian unless you're doing that. So that's what you got to do. That's your assignment. And until we meet again next week, hopefully, or maybe this afternoon show, peace on your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.